90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Trying to get back into the swing of things. Went to a couple of meetings to ease myself back into to life at the university. <laughs> so it's been a busy week. Ah, uh, meetings. That sounds about par for, for the course, yeah. Uh, it was great because we met with this guy who said, well, I've never had a baby in a meeting before because, of course, I brought my baby. And I said, don't you meet with faculty all the time? Oh. Took, him, took him a minute to get it. But, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm also, and I wanted to ask your opinion on this. I'm trying to zero out my inbox. What does your inbox look like? Do you, do you aim for zero unread messages or is this just some weird thing that OCD Uh, Not only zero unread messages, there are zero things in my inbox when I go to sleep every night. You categorize them all. No, no. I, I archive and just use search to find what I need. But if it's in the inbox, to me, that means I still need to do something about it. And before I go to bed, I make sure that things are either taken care of, they're on a list to get taken care of, uh, or it's just referenced and filed away. But no, if there's something in my email inbox, to me, that triggers the, the, the I need to do action so, so your archives, I mean, are they all in different folders? I, I think I could turn this into a whole show, but I'm very interested in like the the basal oh. human need to have like zero inbox. <laughs> no, it's just one folder with everything that I want to keep in it. So it's like a fake inbox. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, it's out of sight, right? Because yeah, if, it's, yeah. if it's in there, I've already taken care of it and I just want to keep it for reference. Uh, and impressive. the search feature now is so good that you don't really need to drag them into folders to me i decided that was a a waste of time to drag everything into folders when i can just type from colon email address and get everything is this in gmail uh gmail will do it uh any email client will do it so i use airmail ah okay all right i'm gonna come back to this at a later date but interesting (laughs) but uh, unbearing from email is a problem when i first started this i think i had like three thousand messages Oh God! <laughs> in my inbox, and uh, by the time I, you know, for the last, I would say six years, uh, I try to keep it zeroed out all the time. Zero. See, I have a friend that does that too, and it just blows my mind that that is a tenable thing that you can do. Like, I think I'd freak out if I looked and it was all blank. But <laughs> I've got about <laughs> well, I mean, 112 left to uh, that are unread that I have to take care of. So, <laughs> well, as a unique experience for you, you'll notice that when you actually do get to zero the Gmail message that pops up says, there's nothing in your inbox. Have a nice day. (gasps) Wow. That is satisfying. (laughs) And also seeing the picture behind all my, all my uh, actual messages. I thought that would be satisfying too. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, what have you been up to besides this deep philosophical pondering of inboxes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've just been trying to keep my head above water as well. I've been working on several pretty interesting hardware projects. So that always keeps things fun. Uh, And keeping up with, there's been a lot of interesting scientific news in the last couple weeks. And so one of the news articles that I stumbled onto is about everybody's favorite autonomous submarine, Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) What's old Bodie up to? So everybody knows that uh, they wanted 
people to vote on a name for the new Antarctic research ship. Bodie McBoatface won. Of course it did. Uh, (laughs) So the uh, Natural Environment Research Council did not like that name so much. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) They named the ship the Sir David Attenborough. But Hmm. as a consolation prize, they named the autonomous submarine that was going to collect data deep in the Weddell Sea, Bodie McBoatface. And so (laughs) it just got back from its maiden data collection voyage. Uh, So it went something like 110 miles, 180 kilometers, over seven weeks, and it went over 13,000 feet deep. Wow. Bodie McBoatface gets around. Yeah, so that's four kilometers. That is significant water pressure and sub-zero water temperatures. Ooh, wow. Um, has, Has there been data released from it yet, or...? I haven't seen any data released. I know the scientists that were looking at the data said that it was massive and beautiful. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, man, I can't wait to go to AGE or GSA and start hearing about this stuff. Yes, and in in fact, they said the the biggest challenge now is just figuring out how to manage and analyze that much data. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely need to be talking about big data in general on the show because that's something I think that we never really had to deal with before, and it seems like we do so much more now. Oh, absolutely. But before the summer short ventures into (laughs) all kinds of directions, uh, we were talking about what we wanted to, to do next, and you had a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, so I figured, you know, we've talked about plate boundaries, right? We've talked about um, different types of rocks and the rock cycle and plate tectonics, but I thought maybe we could, to throw a business term out here, get some synergy going and um, talk... (laughs) (laughs) Everybody loves synergy. And talk about what kind of rocks you would find at different plate boundaries. And I've sort of simplified this kind of for the sake of summer shorts. Um, And I thought we'd do three plate boundaries, right? Divergent, convergent, and transform. And just talk about if you went to those boundaries, where on the rock cycle are you going to be? Okay. Yeah. So I figured we'd start easy with divergent plate boundaries. I think it's easy because there's not many rock types you're going to find at this one. It's true. So we've talked about these plate boundaries before, but these are places where the crust is coming apart. Right. Um, And so it comes apart in two different places, and that's basically at mid-ocean ridges, and then you can have continental rifts. So let's talk about mid-ocean ridges first. I figured you might have a lot more to say about this, because we have to use a lot of geophysical methods to sort of look at these very deep underwater places where the asthenosphere is rising to the surface. Yes, but before we go all the way down to mid-ocean ridges, I think we can back up and just talk a little bit more in general about what rock type you might find and why in a divergent plate boundary to start with. Okay, that's true. Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) So I said this one, this is the easiest one, because most of the type of rocks that you find at divergent plate boundaries are igneous rocks. And there's a couple different ways we classified igneous rocks, so hopefully you still remember that from intro, right, John? (laughs) Uh, well, of course. Um, so <laughs> we, you generally classify them on uh, their chemistry, right? Right, And exactly. so you can look at how much silica is in them. And I can even pull out the, the fancy words of 
Mafic and Felsic. Ooh, excellent. You do remember intro geology. <laughs> right. So igneous rocks are the rock type that's going to tell you uh, about the environment they formed in based on their chemistries. And um, this is what we're looking at when we're looking at these divergent plate boundaries. And when you're looking at the ones under the oceans, you have the word you just said, which is mafic, which means a lot less silica. Right. And so the mafic would be the generally darker yes <laughs> rocks <laughs> i know like we hate to say that but it's absolutely true right <laughs> yeah because when you're identifying rocks or minerals color is the least indicative thing right and then as soon as we all go outside we're like oh look at that clear quartz it's quartz and it's clear right yes. oh look at this really dark oh this is really mafic with no chemical analysis happening in the field exactly. we all do it oh we do all do it it's like the first thing we say not to do and it's the first thing that we all do but <laughs> that's okay um the best the best way to get around that is to get a professor that's colorblind and then he yells at you when you try to use color so yeah that that is one way uh, uh -huh. yeah, the other exactly. way is you can take these handy little handheld uh, composition analyzers into the field now. Oh, of course. You had an equipment solution to this. Yes. <laughs> so you can tell exactly how mafic exactly. this rock is. But that's an important thing because how much silica is in these rocks tells us a lot about where they came from. Exactly. So if we're going to go down under the sea um, to these mid-ocean ridges, these are the divergent boundaries that are happening in the middle of the oceans. It's actually how oceans get made. I think we touched on that in the plate tectonics um, episode. Um, and here we're talking about these things called morbs. And morb is simply mid-ocean ridge basalts. And basalts, they're extrusive, which are the igneous rocks that get erupted out, right? Um, and they're basalts, which are the mafic or the less felsic or the less silica content version of igneous rocks. Exactly. And so these morbs, because nobody wants to type or say the whole thing, uh, <laughs> It, it can actually tell you a lot about what's directly under you in the asthenosphere because this is where the smelt is coming from. That always blows my mind. You know, we, we do all these, you know, breakdowns of lithosphere and asthenosphere, and it's super thick. And uh, if you'll recall, because I'm sure everybody has our episodes memorized, the oceanic lithosphere is about 8 to 10 kilometers thick, right? And here at these mid-ocean ridges, you have asthenosphere right there. And so this is a really great geochemical smorgasbord of you know sampling the earth at these mid-ocean ridges right and you can get some really interesting looking basalt when you have hot rock extruding out and all of a sudden touching ocean water that could be <laughs> sub-zero right Exactly. And in addition to that, you get all sorts of weird um, extremophiles. So weird animals that only live around these very certain geochemical environments. And that's a whole nother very strange under the ocean happening that I can't really get my mind around a lot of times. <laughs> oh, yes. And I will put a link in the show notes so you can see pictures of what are called pillow basalt. Right. Uh, these are really cool, um, and as these this hot asthenosphere get extruded, it kind of blobs out, like you would imagine, um, into this cold ocean water, and then it blobs out again and again, and it basically looks like a bunch of pillows stacked on top of each other. Um, or, you know, I mean, I, I think the way I would describe this is a real-life lava lamp. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it looks like those blobs in lava lamps. They do. It, they don't. They don't circulate convectively. But um, you're absolutely right. They do blob out exactly like that. It's so weird. Um, and we we see these on land, right? Um, that's where we first got a really good look at them, and so we knew that that land was once under the ocean at a mid-ocean ridge, forming new new lithosphere right there where this hot asthenosphere is extruding out. But extrusive rocks aren't the only thing we have going on there. No, so you can also get gabbro, which is pretty much a basalt, but instead of extruding, it's actually intrusive. Right, and this is a lot harder to know anything about because you've got all these extrusives happening on top of it. Um, But you'll definitely get these intrusive mafic and ultramafic rocks also at the um, mid-ocean ridge areas and you have to use like we said geophysics or all kinds of cool equipment to go down and see these things except at iceland right and so since iceland sits on the mid-atlantic ridge (laughs) you get an upfront seat to a lot of interesting processes right exactly and iceland is there just because these extrusive um asthenosphere that's coming up it happens in that specific location much faster than it does anywhere else along the mid-ocean ridge. And so you've got this big pile up, and now you've got this island where there's, you know, not very many people and a whole lot of scary, scary volcanics happening. It's true. And, you know, <laughs> so you said that we don't know a lot about the gabbro, but there is, if you're looking at, you have a basalt and a gabbro in front of you, one thing that you can begin to look for immediately is since the gabbro is intrusive, it has been squirted in between solid material and then cooled, it's going to cool a lot slower than this uh, lava that goes out and hits the the ocean and forms pillow basalts and cools very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of insulated. And so since it cools more slowly, as we've talked about in the past, you can actually get larger and larger crystals forming. So you see something that's got larger crystals in the gabbro, whereas the basalt that goes out and hits the cold water and cools off very quickly is going to have lots of eeny tiny crystals, especially around the outside. Right. So that's something, you know, you pick up one of these basalts and without actual geochemical analysis, you know, if you're not like John and you don't take all your geochemical equipment in the field... (laughs) You don't know anything about it, but those gabbros, the crystal sizes could be big enough that, you know, you can identify them right there just with a hand lens or with the naked eye. Right. So that's one thing to think about is what these different things tell you about the thermal environment in which they formed. Uh, That goes for all the rocks that we're going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Um, So igneous rocks, just geochemistry, we keep saying that because it seems like geochemistry is something that you have to lean on more in in igneous rocks to sort of understand their origins. But divergent boundaries, like we said earlier, aren't just under the ocean, right? That's one type of divergent boundaries. But you also have continental crusts that can diverge or extensional forces that pull it apart and you form these things called rifts. Right, and so this is how big land masses get broken apart and oceans get put in between. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. So big continental rifts have occurred, you know, all throughout since we've had continents, essentially, right? Then we've had oceans that have opened and closed and gone away, and now we see remnants of them on the continents and over and over and over again in this cyclical sort of tectonic dance that the continents do. But we have 
evidence of these continental rifts on continents today that are actually active. Uh, one place is in East Africa, right? Right. So there is a lot of folks, and there were a lot of people at Penn State that were focused on this region, trying to understand what's going on, because it's a great place to do geophysics and geochemistry together. Because you're sitting right on top of an active rift. You're watching a continent get pulled apart. Yeah. It's really mind-blowing to think about. Um, and one thing that one place that everyone may be familiar with, at least by name, is Mount Kilimanjaro, which is a volcano that sits right in the middle of one of these rift valleys. So Kilimanjaro is the sitting there birthing all these igneous rocks that are just asthenosphere that's made its way up through this really thin continental crust that's being thinned because it's at a divergent boundary. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's not only that active rift zone, but the continents are scarred with failed rifts where the continent tried to rip apart and it just didn't happen. And you have this the scar left over. Right. And that's where uh, the Oklahoma allocogen comes in. Yeah, so you're really close to it. So <laughs> exactly. <that's handy. laughs> um, as in geology, as we always state, uh, we always like to make up stuff. And allocogen is another word for <laughs> a failed rift arm. And so this is a part of Oklahoma where we have our igneous rocks, and it's in southern Oklahoma. And we don't just have extrusive igneous rocks here. We have an awful lot of intrusive igneous rocks here as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are massive amounts of igneous down south. <laughs> right. And, you know, if, if you look at the igneous rocks in Oklahoma or in any continental rift, you're not looking at a pile of basalt. Exactly. So the southern Oklahoma lacogen is Cambrian, so it's been around for a long time. It's been buried and exhumed and buried and exhumed, but you still have some extrusive rocks there. And as John just said, a massive amount of very felsic granites, and that's what makes up the Wichita Mountains of Oklahoma. Yes. So there's there's the granite, and then there are massive, huge, thick rhyolite deposits. Uh, yes, and we've got gabbros down there, and I say the granite, but it's not just one granite. It's a whole bunch of different granites, and they're all different because of different geochemical signatures. So I feel like continental rifts are the divergent boundary that produces a really wide array of igneous rocks, not just intrusive and extrusive, but also geochemically speaking, because you're bringing up this asthenosphere, but you're also melting a lot of continental crust, which is more felsic so it's got a lot more silica in it anyway and so that mix of geochemistries can get quite complex and it's amazing when you're doing field work in southern oklahoma in this area you're standing on top of a very thick pile you don't know how thick because you don't have geophysics there probably um of rhyolite and you're saying okay so this area had volcanically active things going on all right and then you keep walking and you start seeing things that don't look like igneous. And all of a sudden, you're looking at things that are sedimentary, and you've got glauconite. And you're like, okay, this this was underwater at one point. Uh-uh. And it's, it's a fascinating experience because you're going so far back to when this rift had failed. Right, exactly. Um, the Southern Oklahoma Lockagen is its own show because it's a quite uh, interesting geologic history that happens there. And so 
like John just said, there's a whole bunch of different rock types besides just all the different igneous rocks. Um, what always sort of struck me, if anyone has been to the Wichita Mountains and been hiking around down there, um, is the different granites, how they all look a lot alike. I mean, I am a sedimentary person, <laughs> but it's <laughs> unbelievable once you get into the geochemistry, the is sort of history of the rift that you can start to make out the different eruptive events, the different um, intrusive emplacement events, and you know where these different magmas are coming from, you know what they're melting as they come up and how that mixes. It's all it actually makes me want to study igneous rocks a little bit. Yeah, I know it's definitely one area where neither of us are. <laughs> Mm-hmm. experts yeah that's for sure igneous rocks are hard uh, so in that case we, we can actually talk about something that is not intuitive which is sedimentary rocks and continental <laughs> rifts right and, and we're not talking about the sedimentary rocks you were just talking about which had to do with you know the rift over time evolving and you getting you know the ocean coming in we're talking about active rifts where there's sediments being deposited and um, a good area that we can talk about that a lot of people might be familiar with is the Basin Range province out in the western part of the United States. And also the title of a John McPhee book. (laughs) The best John McPhee book, by the way. (laughs) Um, So the Basin and Range owes itself to extensional tectonics that happened in the Cenozoic, so not very long ago. And these extensional tectonics have made a series of Basin and Ranges... (laughs) Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and so these are just big fault blocks um, that are their big normal faults. If you think about pulling apart the crust, the crust is going to thin out as you do this, and it's going to break, and these big blocks start to rotate. And the pointy upward parts are the ranges, but in between the ranges you have these big basins. But also what you get out there, it's very arid, and you get a whole lot of weathering. Right. And so what that means is the pointy parts get broken down somewhat. <laughs> And the sediment that comes off them ends up going into the basins, and you get massive amounts of basin fill. Yes, massive amounts. Um, And this is how you basically bury mountain ranges, right? Is that you start to erode them, and then you fill up the holes that they made, and then they're gone. And that's exactly what's happening out there. And you can see it very clearly, not just in an airplane, but standing on top of one of the ranges. You can tell that these big basins in between are just getting filled up rather quickly with massive amounts of sediments. And so you've got, you know, sedimentary rocks. These are all sedimentary rocks to begin with, but sedimentary rocks being weathered down and depositing as sediment. And they're going to be new sedimentary rocks here in a couple million years. Exactly. And so really the mountains kind of bury themselves with themselves. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 a weird cycle to think about, but it happens all over the world over and over and over again. Exactly. And I'll put a link in that shows what a cross section of this would look like if you're having a little bit of trouble picturing these yes. <laughs> these faults that are in series as you extend the crust. Yeah, I guess we do have a lot of people that are from Australia, right? They probably don't know what the basin range is like we do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do try to draw this in intro geology. It's quite hilarious, really, because I'll draw it and talk about it, and then I show an actual diagram, and all the students, every year, they're like, oh, that's what you meant. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing the best I can, okay? <laughs> Drawing structure's hard because you have to do the right scale exaggerations and... Yeah. It's it's difficult to do. 
Yeah, I agree. But and now if you imagine doing that without the chalkboard, that's what we just did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly our apologies. <laughs> go click on that link and then go, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. Exactly. <laughs> so that so that's an that's an example where you're getting sedimentary rocks at continental rifts as well. Um, continental rifts are very interesting in terms of geologic processes, and I'm sure we will talk much more about them in future shows too. Okay, so we've covered oceanic and continental diverging plate boundaries. Mm-hmm. So that means next week we're going to go to convergent. I thought so. Because we're actually making rocks there. Transform is going to be all you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're still making rocks and transform boundaries. But convergent boundaries will be next, which are also quite a diverse group of um, rock types. Actually, much more diverse than the divergent plate boundaries, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. So we'll have a lot more to say about this. <laughs> Well, without further delay then, I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Where did you get that cowbell? (laughs) So that is actually thanks to listener Steve, who missed the cowbell so much that he Amazon primed a cowbell to me so I would have it in time for this week's show. Oh my God, that's beautiful, Steve. I'm sorry. My household is just not conducive to cowbells at night. (laughs) Well, that's okay. We have one now. So thank you, Steve, for sending in the cowbell. It is sitting on my desk and will be the new Fun Paper Friday bell. Oh, my God. That's so great. I love our listeners. I I know. And it is a really nice, it's probably seven or eight inches tall, kind of a bronze finish. It's a nice cowbell. I really think I need to follow up with your quantitative analysis of cowbell quality but that's okay we'll move on i guess (laughs) (laughs) well so we also have another great one of our listeners listener mark sent in this fun paper called iot goes nuclear creating a zigbee chain reaction by ronan et al uh so i was really intimidated by this paper um but it was actually written quite well and i found it very entertaining (laughs) i did too and you know when uh When Mark suggested this paper, which he did on Twitter, he said, here's another fun paper for some sufficiently broad definition of fun. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, this is fascinating. So Internet of Things devices, so everything that's connected to the Internet, you know, now your your doorbell, your light bulbs, your toaster, who knows what. Your your crock pot, specifically. Yes, my crock pot is connected. Uh, (laughs) They estimate that in the next five years, there's going to be more than 50 billion things on the Internet of Things. God, that's so weird to me. And this is not just a consumer electronics thing. I've been getting emails from National Instruments and some of the other companies that I work with about industrial IoT. So having industrial components in factories or in plants that are self-reporting or can, you know, send messages when they need maintenance, all these other things. Uh, Uh, They want to do that until they read this paper. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) this paper talks about the Philips Hue light bulbs, uh, the smart lights, which I have almost bought a few times (laughs) and how uh, you can create a worm and take them down. Uh, yeah, this is crazy. Um, my first 
besides even thinking about this, because I we own a really old house. I drive a really old car. Nobody's taking over my car. Like, <laughs> I'm very anti-internet of things. I don't know if that comes through in my personality at all, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to worry about this. But the first thing I learned about this was what is a Zigbee protocol? I didn't realize there was anything other than Wi-Fi. Oh, well, yeah. So there are lots of different wireless protocols. Yeah, I had no... I mean, not that I had no idea, but I hadn't really thought about this or that this was even in use in in great enough... You know, a great enough number of people use this. Well, I mean, if you think about it too, there's there's Bluetooth, there's Bluetooth Low Energy or Bluetooth LE, BTLE. Uh, there are multiple different wireless protocols. So you may see on routers in the store, they're 802.11, B, G, N, A, N. There's a plethora. Were you, are you just say, are you just saying numbers and letters together? <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't real. <laughs> um, so this is interesting. So this is different than Wi-Fi, right? So it's a much um, smaller sort of bandwidth, right? Yeah. So these are small, generally short-range, point-to-point contacts. Right. And they put these things in these Philips Hue lamps, right? So they can talk to, I'm assuming you run these things from your phone. Is that how this works? Well, they, they have an app, but they talk to a base station. Okay. So you've got a base station that plugs into the wall, and all the Philips Hue lights in your house connect to the base station. The base station connects to your Wi-Fi router, and then you can control your lights from your phone from anywhere. Oh, that's right. Okay. There's, the nice this is thing... Actually, this is actually in a figure, right? Yeah. Right. The nice thing about this, though, is, well, each of the light bulbs can only talk to the base station, and it's a short-range, very secure protocol so the base station's the only thing really talking to the internet. That's where you need to really focus a lot of your, your attention, right? Because attacks are going to come from the internet, right? right? Right. Not from the lamp in the next room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what they were able to do, which is pretty amazing to me, oh, is yeah. they were able to find a problem in the... This uh, Zigbee Lightlink ZLL protocol. Mm-hmm. And basically, you're able to do a factory reset. And if you timed things correctly, uh, you were able to get the lamp to repair to you, even though you're very far away. That one of their big security measures was when you're pairing the lamp, it has to be within one meter right. of the base station. So they look, is the signal really strong? Yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you send the proper reset signal by doing some trickery that uh, is detailed in the paper and probably not that interesting radio, uh, <laughs> then <laughs> you can actually get this factory reset going, get the joiner start uh, network request, and get it to connect to you. So the part that is interesting about it is the fact that they did this flying a drone, right? <laughs> Yeah, so once they figured out how to do this, uh, they both did war driving and war flying. (laughs) This is amazing. Uh, This is like an acceptable statement. Like, they don't even define it in here. (laughs) War flying. I have this highlighted every time it's mentioned because it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a logical extension to the term war driving, which I've heard for a long time. Oh, see, they, they, they did war driving in quotation marks, I'm assuming, because they're super young and they only know about drones. <laughs> but... 
<laughs> so the, the other interesting thing about this, though, was you can, okay, you, you've used this, you've bypassed the touch link proximity check. Great. Mm-hmm. It's connected to you. What are you going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> Turn okay. people's lights on and off at random. Right. But then what if we could update the firmware? What if we could overwrite the manufacturer's code on the system on a chip, which is a, an Atmel, Atmega 2564? Okay. Oh, that now could be can... interesting because now you have complete control of the device. You can do whatever you want. Right. Including brick it, right? Yes, you could brick it. And well, that shouldn't be a concern because they encrypt everything. You have to have you have to have keys to change anything on the device. Unfortunately, uh-huh. they use the same key for everything in their family, and by using a chip whisperer, they were <laughs> able to back out what this key is. And the way they do this is amazing. It's through power analysis. Yeah, this was really interesting because this is a sort of a new way of getting into or overriding the system, right? Yeah, so you look at the power draw from the chip and try things and see how the power draw changes. And then you're inferring the key that you need bit by bit. Yeah, that was really weird. So they have a graph in here showing this differential power analysis attack uh, where they were actually able to recover all bits. Uh, and then get in, yeah. And then get in and put their own firmware on it. So their firmware was not that malicious. Uh, it flashed SOS yeah. and changed the firmware version from some hash to irradiate hue. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I do like to imagine all these people's lamps flashing SOS, though. That's pretty good. Well, so they, they planted lamps to do this test they didn't go out and yes. do this to, to random people yeah but what's scary is their firmware could then send this reset signal out so this this new lamp that's infected sends the reset out any lamp that can hear it resets it then uploads this new firmware to that lamp and it spreads just like a disease yeah so this is the really cool part because they modeled this using a thing called percolation theory which was super cool um and it's how they model diseases right so you have to have because it's this close proximity thing you have to have enough lamps in proximity to each other right or else it's just gonna die whatever worm you're trying to infect everything with and so they modeled like how many lamps do you need in this certain sort of circular area and they looked at Paris as an example of this. And this was actually some really disturbing numbers, I thought, that came out of this. Yeah, so to get a Philips Hue worm to spread across Paris, you only need 15,000 Philips Hue lights in the city. A, yeah, and they have, apparently, these are way more popular in Europe than they are here. So they've estimated that they've already surpassed that by far. No, I mean, I was just amazed that there are that many lamps there that are that popular. Because like you said here, there aren't tons. But before you go out and buy some of this equipment and go do your own war driving, <laughs> uh, you should know that, of course, they ethically disclose this to Phillips. Phillips put out a patch, and then the paper came out. Um, but they said there are undoubtedly other yeah. <laughs> security exploits, um, um, which was, was interesting. I was surprised at how many references they had to other um, studies about this. I didn't realize this was something that that got done in the academic community. I mean, I know there's like hackathons where they try to 
hack into things and let companies know about these security risks, but I didn't realize that this was a whole area of research. Oh, no. Uh, hardware security and just security in general is a very big academic area, and hardware security is becoming more and more important because now we've got you know, everything has a processor in it, and everything's your TV, uh, any kind of you know, person in a tube device that you've got, whether that be Google or Amazon or whatever, you've got so many things. Uh, just my home network has 20 odd things connected to the internet right now. Oh my Lord. See, this is where, <laughs> this is where we just bought a new TV and I specifically didn't even get a smart TV because, um, I, my comment at the end of the conclusions is, you know, how do you, because they say, you know, this stuff is all inevitable and, these are the solutions, you have to do this patch and whatever. Or you can just not have things connected to the internet, right? <laughs> you can. And there's some security advantage to that, of course. There's a disadvantage in terms of what you could do and convenience. Uh, uh, well, I want to I wanna point back to your story last week, John. I think we talked about this offline. <laughs> um, but <laughs> how <laughs> you and your wife are both sitting there, unbeknownst to each other, changing the temperature in the room on your phones at the same time. Yeah, so time. <laughs> we have a we have a Nest thermostat. That's one of the connected devices. And I kept thinking, man, it's it's kind of hot in here and turning the temperature down. And she kept thinking, man, it's kind of cold in here and turning the temperature up. And we unknowingly uh, fought each other on the temperature for a couple hours. Oh, oh, see, and when my husband and I do this, we have to actually physically fight to get control of the thermostat. <laughs> so you know, there's no school like the old school. I think. Right, and. <laughs> You know, one of the really cool things about doing this kind of work is it doesn't take a ton of equipment. You don't need a lab full. They've got a picture in here that shows all the equipment they use. There's a TI development board. They had their own little custom PCB to make it easier to take the chips off of the lights and put them on there to try to reverse engineer their security. Mm -hmm. uh, a chip whisperer and a bus pirate that talks to the memory and helps reprogram it. I mean, I would say that there's some of, there are several things in this photo that I've got sitting in my basement. Oh yeah, that's, well, and then they've got the picture of their drone out there as well. So that's exactly what I was thinking was that you've probably done this or now you're going to do it at least. <laughs> it would be really interesting to get into the, the power draw attack uh, space well, I, I love and learn that some about it. Their war driving was done on campus too. They just, right. like, says, somebody sat outside in the car, outside of the lab, and was like, try this. <laughs> but th this is one of those things where somebody else could have figured this out and could have caused a large problem in a big city. Yeah. By mm -hmm. bricking thousands, tens of thousands. Everybody, yeah, exactly. And then going on a crime spree, obviously, right? That's the next step. <laughs> right, but th this is pointing to a deeper issue of these yeah. are Philips Hue lights, but what about other internet? What about medical devices that are connected to the internet? Right, exactly. What about you safety can't... critical systems that are connected to the internet? And you can't get away from those things. I mean, everybody's pacemakers are all internet now, so that's, you know, you don't have a choice anymore. And, of course, with medical, there's a huge regulation that goes along with that. Uh, we'll link in some episodes of Embedded for those that are interested. 
yeah. in that. Th- this actually feels like if uh, if Alicia and Chris over on Embedded had a fun paper Friday, this would have been the perfect <laughs> one for them. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, we should send this to them, and they can keep sending us charismatic megafauna. And then... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, Mark, thanks for this paper. It's uh, free. Anybody can get it, so the link will be in the show notes. And it's worth the read, because even if you're not super familiar with how all of this works, you can still get a lot out of it. And if you want to deep dive and read some about these uh, power line attacks, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, the, the, it was even cool for me. So I will say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you have a fun paper that you would like to send, if you'd like to send us the security keys that you pull out of your Philips Hue smart lamps <laughs> or have any feedback for us, we would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com and we pay attention to Twitter hence that fun paper right we are at don'tpanicgeo John is at geo underscore Lehman I'm at Shannon Doolin and then we're always on the uh, swung slack chat room I stop in every week make some obnoxious comments and go away for a while but uh, it's really picking up in there there's a lot of uh, chatter going on and a lot of really cool science being done absolutely and until next week remember don't panic It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Hold on. I got a binky emergency again. Man, no, they just trick you into thinking.